0: Jesus, thank you so much um, for this day, for your Sabbath, for this week of Thanksgiving to take a moment and stop and be present with our friends and our family and be present in the spirit of thankfulness. Jesus, we, we, we just don't thank you enough. So I pray that you give us hearts that are full of gratitude and appreciation for the God that you are and the way that you move in our lives. So Jesus, move in our lives today Help us to rest in the Sabbath fully. We thank you for that. We thank you for who you are, and we thank you for your sacrifice. We love you so much in your name. Amen. All right, so as I begin, I want to explain to you guys a little bit about why I chose to speak on Ruth. So naturally, I was drawn to this strong, courageous, wonderful woman of the Bible, but there's a little bit of a more surface reason as well. When you're a young girl growing up, you don't have very many options if you're looking to a Bible hero or a role model from the Bible, right? You usually end up with the answers of Ruth and Esther. So I wanted to look a little bit deeper into their lives and their stories. And with much Bible characters, the women who are in the Bible such as Ruth and Esther who have a whole book dedicated to them. You notice that they have very important stories to tell. Whenever a woman gets a lot of face time in the Bible, there's usually something significant about that. And so that's exactly true with Ruth. She holds a pretty incredible place in history because Ruth is one of the four women that are written into the genealogy of Jesus. So if you wanna to turn to Matthew chapter one in your pew Bibles, that's gonna be page 895, just to check this out. It's Matthew chapter one. We'll see the genealogy that leads into Jesus. These four women are not noted for their idealistic marriages or their relationships but rather each one of these women's stories includes intimate relationships or marriages that do not fall in line with the status quo of the day. Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her and his mother to Perez, who is mentioned in Matthew 1. Rahab was a harlot who housed spies. She's the mother of Boaz, who we're later going to see in the story of Ruth, and she's also mentioned in the faith chapter in Hebrews 11. Then we have Ruth a Moabite widow who takes matters into her own hands in proposing marriage to a man. We have Uriah's wife, or Bathsheba, who is connected to the sin of King David, and he ended up covering up that sin with murder. As you can see, these women did not adhere to the status quo of their day. Situations like these are looked down upon in biblical times, and they're also looked down upon most of the time today as well. This isn't your atypical Disney princess, fairy tale story, but rather the opposite. In Sleeping Beauty, Prince Philip awakens Aurora with a kiss, but here we'll see Ruth awakens Boaz in the middle of the night at a threshing floor. This is more than just a great story of Ruth's loyalty and courage, but Ruth's is a story and an allegory of Christ's redemption for us. The story takes you on a journey and it really does speak for itself. So if you'll turn with me to page 246 in your pew Bibles, or Ruth chapter one if you've brought your owner using your smartphone, we're going to look through the story and see what's been documented in the book of Ruth. We're gonna focus mainly on this first chapter and then we'll pull Boaz into the second chapter next week when we talk more about him and Ruth's relationship. Today we're gonna to look in depth at the characters of Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, the three main women of the story. The opening line in the book of Ruth reminds us of where we are in the timeline of history. Ruth 1.1 reads, in the days when the judges ruled, there was famine in the land. The book of Judges includes story after story of warfare, violence, and Israel's constant disobedience to God. The story of Ruth though, you could argue, is a, it kind of loosely follows our love story of the day and was a light to this dark period of the judges. During this time, when the judges ruled, there were chaotic situations happening all around, and I would argue that Ruth and Boaz are kind of the Rose and Jack of the sinking Titanic of their day. What you'll notice in the story is there's an absence of many small details. We're given the skeleton of the story, and we're not given much insight into how the characters are feeling, except for a little bit with Naomi when she opens up a little later on. We don't know what tensions arose in Naomi's household or Orpah and Ruth's household when these Moabite women decided to marry Israelite men. But by not getting caught up on all these little details, the skeleton of the story is able to speak. Even without the details to answer all our questions, we can still see these major points that are being pushed in the story of Ruth. So let's continue reading. There was famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went out to live a while in the the country of Moab. Bethlehem, the house of bread, is no longer providing food. So this man abandons abandons his home with his family to find food elsewhere. He takes the opportunity to leave, leaving God's land to go to a land that was looked down upon. The Moabites didn't have such a good reputation with the Israelites, and in Judges, we see this constant tension between them, especially in chapter three, we see why, they are such, um, why they're at such odds and at heads with each other. It's speculated that this would be a dangerous and or embarrassing place for this man to take his family to move to. It was something that he felt he needed to do though. He needed to provide for his family. The story rapidly takes a turn for the worst, and we are told the names of the family members first. The husband, Elimelech, try saying that five times fast. It's not easy. (laughs) The wife, Naomi, and then their two sons, Malone and Kilion. And just like that, right after we're told the names of these people, Elimelech dies. And then his two sons marry Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. The author wastes no ink on these major life events and continues on. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malone and Kilion died. Naomi was left no husband, no sons, and two Moabite women for daughters-in-law. Again, no ink wasted. Over 10 years is wrapped up in this handful of verses. The story seems to kind of just shut down. What, what could be so interesting about the story of three widows? Well, we're about to find out. Sometime later, Naomi hears that the Lord has begun providing food again in her homeland. So she decides, that's what she's going to do, she's going to go home. Historians and scholars aren't quite sure if it was normal conduct for the daughters-in-laws to go with their mother-in-law because the situation was very um, obscure that all three of them were widows. So nonetheless, the girls decide they're going to go with Naomi. If you look to verse eight, we'll read along in this story. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant each of you find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept out loud and said to her, we will go back with you and to your people. But Naomi said, return home my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons for you to marry? And even if I had a son tonight and gave birth to two sons, would, they, would you wait until they grew up? Do you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than it is for you. At this, she kissed them again, they wept out loud. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Let's break it down a little bit. Naomi gives them an out. She tells them to go back to their mother's homes, but they refuse this offer. So in Swiss culture, this is either Swiss Swiss culture or my family's just messing with me, but you you ask, um, if you go to someone's house and they ask you, would you like a glass of water, you politely decline. Then after you're asked twice more, it's socially acceptable for you to um, accept the glass of water or whatever is offered to you. So I don't know if this is just a Swiss thing, but I think it's also just a people thing because I've noticed we kind of do it with food as well. I do it a lot. Um, The conversation will go a little bit something like this. You know, I'm getting kind of hungry. I think I'm gonna get something to eat. Do you want anything? No, no, I I had a really late lunch. I'm really not hungry at all, but thank you. That's, That's so kind. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm really sure. I'm really not that hungry right now. So if you aren't thinking of someone who does this and who all of a sudden when the food comes, the person who wasn't so hungry is now having the appetite of a starving dog, if, you'd, if you are not thinking of a friend, a family member, a loved one who does this, you're probably that person. I know I'm that person. <laughs> so Naomi in her own way, we see, is giving an out. She tells them to return home and build a family because they still have the chance to. The three of them wept. I can't imagine this was time to just shed a tear or two, but this is one of those cries where months and weeks and years of this inner turmoil is finally bubbling up to the surface surface, and they're letting it all out. The Hebrew word here is baka, and that literally means to weep or to wail. These women were bonded together by life and by tragedy. They've spent years together, spent countless holidays, countless meals together. Naomi has introduced them to her God. They've buried their dead together, and now they're going to part ways. The girls insist on going back with Naomi to her land and to her people. Maybe they really wanted to go back with her. Maybe they were just being polite. Regardless, they insist on going home with Naomi. At this point, Naomi gets a little more stern. She's being realistic. She tells them that two young women actually have a future, and they wouldn't have a future if they decided to come with her there is no way she will be able to have sons or for them to have husbands. Naomi starts to reveal the devastation that's been weighing on her soul. She says, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. You could see, you know, Naomi probably wouldn't be the best evangelist, you know, really talking of God and the great things he's been doing for her. So she's this, Agony that's weighing on her soul is starting to come out. This is one of those moments we're able to see inside the character's head and heart. The story of Naomi is a light parallel to that of Job. She undergoes blow after blow after blow. She packs up, moves to a foreign land that's despised. Her husband dies, her son dies, and now she has two Moabite daughter-in-laws. The name Naomi is literally translated to mean pleasant or sweet. And we are now starting to see this bitterness engulf her soul. She is seeing God as someone who's turning against her and bringing her pain and devastation rather than comfort. She's now left with these two girls begging to go home with her. There are many different questions we could pose and try to answer. Was Naomi being selfish? Did she think it might be more difficult to go back to a normal life, having two Moabites tagging along with her? Maybe she was just looking out for the girls and didn't want Orpah and Ruth to experience the poor treatment of those who claim to follow the one true God. This brings me to my first recalibrate question. So if you have your worship guide, you'll find those in there. If you don't have a worship guide, we can get some to you if you wanna raise your hand and we can find you one. Okay, we have a couple people who don't have worship guides. I see Peter's on it. Thank you, Peter. First recalibrate question. Have you ever not wanted to bring someone to church with you? I'm not talking about one Saturday where you opt out of going to church and would rather go hiking. I'm talking about being worried that a friend or family member who doesn't look, sound, act or smell Adventist enough will be poorly treated. I can imagine that maybe Naomi is worried that her people will not be a good representation of God that her and her family have showed Ruth and Orpah. Has that ever happened in your life? Have you had friends or family visiting once and maybe they weren't religious or maybe they just weren't Adventists and you opted out of going to church because of this? Or maybe you did go to church but you felt like you constantly had to give explanations or excuses for the comments and the behavior of the people there. My entire short life I can say I've been blessed to say that I go to a church where I've never dreaded bringing someone with me. But what I can tell you is that Boulder Church is a place where I'm excited to bring people with me. I'm confident that after meeting a university student or someone in the grocery store, to invite them to come to our church for Saturday morning worship, because I know that they're gonna be warmly greeted by Audrey Ambler, by The Means, by Luke Lydon and Shelley Miller, just to name a few. I'm confident that our church family looks past outward, outward, um, outward appearances and looks to the heart. I'm confident that our worship team cares and prepares for the songs that they sing and the worship that they lead. I'm confident that the sermons that are preached up here are not a platform to be rude and exclude, but a platform to share Jesus' love and grace for all of us. I'm confident that when someone comes to Boulder Church, they feel loved, accepted, and most of all, they come to a better understanding of the gospel of Jesus and the real implications it has on their everyday life. I want to bring someone to Boulder Church with me because when I come here, I feel loved and accepted and I come to understand Jesus' love and grace a little better each week. I believe that Boulder Church, that our church is a Ruth and not an Orpah. Maybe you feel the same way. Maybe you've had different experiences than I've had and maybe it was here or somewhere else. But I want to ask that question. Have you ever not wanted to bring someone to church with you? If your answer is no, then I ask you, why not bring someone? Maybe you have a straightforward answer, or maybe you're feeling like Naomi, bitter and feeling abandoned by God. It can be hard to introduce someone to a God that you feel yourself you're not close with. Naomi urges them to go back home, and again, the three women weep. At this point, Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye, but Ruth clings to her. I'm a list person, so we're going to do a comparison and contrast of Ruth and Orpah. Of course, we don't know all the little details about their lives, but what we do know from the story, we can compare and contrast. So, the things that we do know, the comparisons about them, we know that they're both Moabites, right? We know that they both married into Naomi's family. We know that both of their husbands died, they're both widows. We know that they both planned on going back to Naomi's home with her. We know that they are both young and would be eligible to find a new husband. We know that they both have homes to go back to. And we know that they both deeply care for Naomi, and they weep at the thought of leaving her. These two women have a lot in common, but it takes only one contrast to change the outcome of their stories. Orpah takes that out. She's sad to leave Naomi, but realizes that she's probably right there's no life for her in Bethlehem. If she stays in Moab, she has the chance of finding a husband, having children, and creating a family and living her happily ever after. Orpah kisses Naomi goodbye, but Ruth clings to her. If you're following along in your Bibles, we're going to start again in verse 15. Naomi says to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law's gone back to her people and to her gods, return after her. In essence, Naomi is giving her the third out, but Ruth will have none of it. Naomi's not mad at Orpah for leaving. It's the right thing to do. It makes the most sense. It follows the status quo. Orpah needs a husband. Without one, she doesn't have much of a life. Orpah is choosing the best path here, right? Ruth answers Naomi in the next few verses with her famous speech. So if you'll follow along. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts me from you. Two women, two very similar lives, but two very different reactions. We're able to look at the story as a whole. We can see that it all works out great for Ruth in the end. But if we didn't have that knowledge of the outcome of the story, I would think we would all have to agree that at this point, it looks like Ruth is being crazy, irrational, and if we're being honest from an outside perspective, she's being dumb. Orpah had a good head on her shoulders. She made her pros and cons list. It was pretty obvious that the pros outweighed the cons and that going with Naomi was not the best path for her. Orpah made the rational decision. The story doesn't tell us why Ruth chose to stay with Naomi. Maybe she was that selfless. But it's hard for me to believe that a 20-something-year-old young woman would make a statement so bold to denounce her family, her people, and her entire future to care for her mother-in-law as a widow, who's telling her, go home. The story doesn't tell us if God gave Ruth a call to go with Naomi, no matter what the cost. All we know is that she was courageous and confident in that decision. Two women, two similar lives, two different decisions. Orpah disappears from the story, and Ruth becomes a key character in the genealogy of Jesus. This week, I was privileged to be a part of the Freshword Bible study and it's a group that meets every Tuesday here at the church and we we're studying the first two chapters of Ruth together and Jackie Hayes thought it might be interesting to see if there was any history on what happened to Orpah. So I took matters into my own hands and although the Bible does not share with us what happened to Orpah, she just disappears from the story, the Talmud, which is the collection of Jewish law and tradition and stories, um, does have a little something to say about her. In these writings, we're told that as soon as Orpah parted company with Naomi and Ruth, she went to the absolute extreme. Naomi refers to her as having returned to her people and her gods from Ruth 1.15. But the Talmud explains that what happened next. Upon leaving Naomi, Orpah ran into a group of 100 soldiers. She willingly submitted herself to them all, and from the lot she became pregnant and bore the giant Goliath, whom young David would later meet in battle. Now we don't know for sure and we wonder about the timeline and the dates and the ages of everyone in this, but it's just kind of an interesting thought. The Bible gives us no indication of what happens to Orpah, but we do see that Orpah's decision has a huge impact on her future, whether we're aware of it or not, or whether she was aware of it or not. Her and Ruth were given the same opportunity and only one took the chance to break the status quo. Do you remember our comparison and contrast list? Dorpa and Ruth's comparisons ran heavy, but the one main contrast was the path that they took. It was Thanksgiving break about four years ago, and I was home from college. And so I went home to Washington, and a couple of my friends decided like, hey, we should go hiking. So we thought that's a great idea. Um, So because we're in Colorado, I think I need to explain what Washington hiking looks like. So Colorado hiking, you know, you get on your shoes. It can be your tennis shoes, your hiking boots, whatever. You know, you put on your fleece vest and maybe a long sleeve shirt, you know, depending on the weather. Or if you're going up a 14 or you get more bundled up. Um, In Washington, um, when I was getting ready for this hike, I put on my raincoat. You have to have a hood because if you don't, that's just stupid. Um, And instead of hiking boots, I put on my rain boots. So rubber rain boots. rain jacket and I was ready to go. So we set off hiking and I think we were pretty glad that we had brought the rain boots because much of the trail was mud or water like this deep. And so we're going through, we, we hike all the way down and we hike down to um, a river and it was really beautiful. And um, the thing is, it was starting to get late. It was starting to get dark. And so we thought, wow, it's gonna take quite a, quite a bit of time to go back up that path. So my friend Jordan said, hey, why don't we just go straight up? You know, I, can, I think I can see the path up there and we would cut off so much time and so much walking. I thought he was kidding. Um, there should be a photo of the straight up path that we took, if Aaron has it. There's, the hi- there's our hiking boots, Washington hiking boots. And then um, the next photo will be the trail. So that's what we hiked up. This wasn't a trail, but nonetheless, it did cut off a lot of time. I complained the whole way up Um, (laughs) and I was an Orpah at heart that day. I can tell you, I don't blame her for going about the normal way, you know, the normal right way of doing things, the smart way, Um, the more comfortable way for sure. The path that was an actual path ahead of her. In her commentary on Ruth, Catherine Sockenfield puts it this way. She says, it is notable that Orpah, who appears briefly and just as quickly leaves the stage, is not criticized for her behavior. It is as if she has done what is expected in the context of the story. Not less, but not more. Nothing, Nothing requiring reprimand, yet nothing worthy of praise. Whether from the narrator or from the other participants. Thus, it is the extraordinary behavior of Ruth in response to Naomi's need, together with the extraordinary behavior of Boaz in response to Ruth's example and suggestion that moves the story from grief to joy, from emptiness to fullness. She does what she's expected to do. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing worthy of reprimand, but still nothing worthy of praise. This brings me to the second recalibrate question. Are you going to be an Orpah or a Ruth? Are you an Orpah? Are you okay with walking only on the paved paths created for you? Are you comfortable with sticking to the status quo, not stirring up any tension? Are you comfortable with tradition and the way things are supposed to go? Or do you choose to be a Ruth, to be bold and courageous? making decisions and following God, even when the path does not look easy or promising or like a path at all. Choosing to give up a clear and comfortable future for the unknown, to be like a Ruth. Ruth had no idea what her life would look like next week, let alone in the next 10 years. She must have taken a lot of faith to actually look to God and make sure that he would guide her steps. Ruth's decision continues the plot of the story and not just her story, but a story that leads all the way into the New Testament and into our lives today. Ruth takes a chance. Laurel Thatcher Ulrich has been continually quoted by other famous women with her quote that says, well-behaved women seldomly make history. When we look back in the story, we see a chain of the status quo being broken. It is said that the most dangerous phrase we can ever use is, Well, it's always been done that way. If we always did things the way they were supposed to be done, where would we be? Our technology, our language, our culture would all be stunted. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln pushed on to break the status quo by issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. Abe Lincoln was not an Orpa; He was a Ruth. And now, just over 150 years later, Our first African-American president has served two full terms. Susan B. Anthony, a social reformer and women's rights activist, fought for equality. Susan was a Ruth. The paved path to status quo was not acceptable to her. She possessed the character of Ruth, and although she died before the ratification of the 19th Amendment and was never able to vote herself, she still never stopped fighting. Beethoven was deaf but he never stopped composing. Thomas Edison was told by his teachers that he was too stupid to learn anything. He failed over and over and over and over again until he invented the light bulb, but he didn't stop trying. Walt Disney was told he lacked imagination and had no good ideas, but he didn't stop creating. Vincent van Gogh lived to only see one of his paintings sold, and that was to a close friend for a very reasonable price. But he didn't stop painting. Martin Luther broke the church's status quo, wrote the 95 Theses, nailed them to the door, and faced death. But he didn't stop reforming. I could go on and on with a list of people like this. That didn't take the easiest path. Ruth chose the path that wasn't paved. When she looked to her future, she saw nothing but the life of a widow taking care of her mother-in-law in a foreign land. But she clung to Naomi anyways. To make bold decisions and to have courage to take action, we must first develop the character of Ruth. We must choose to be active, make choices, stand up, and go when we are called. Both Orpah and Ruth were given the same opportunity, but only one did something with it. If you turn with me to Matthew 25, verse 14, we'll read the parable of the talents. Again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them. While he was gone, he gave five bags of silver to one, two bags of silver to another, and one bag of silver to the last, dividing it in proportion to their abilities and then he left on his trip. The servant who received the five bags of silver began to invest the money and earned five more. But the servant, with two bags, the servant with two bags of silver also went to work and earned two more. But the servant who received the one bag of silver dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, their master returned from his trip and called them on account of the money that he had given them. The servant which whom he had entrusted the five bags of silver came forward with five more and said, Master, you gave me five bags to invest and I earned you five more. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. The servant, who had received the two bags of silver, came forward and said, Master, you gave me two bags of silver to invest, and I have earned two more. The master said, Well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with handling the small amount. So now I will give you much more responsibilities. Let's celebrate together. Then the servant with the one bag came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, harvesting crops you didn't plant and gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid to lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Look, here's your money back. But the master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew I harvested crops that I didn't plant and gathered crops I didn't cultivate. Why didn't you deposit the money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from the servant and give it to the one with 10 bags of silver. To those who use well what they are given, even more will be given and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even what little they have will be taken away. Throw this useless service into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Each and every one of us is blessed with something. It may seem that we have more than others, but in this parable, the master does give each servant something. We're each given something different, each our own talents or bag of silver, if you will different resources, different spiritual gifts, we are each dealt a different hand in life. The smart servants took what they had and put it into action. They invested it and made their talents grow. But the foolish servant took what had been given and hid it. He was worried that he would lose it, so he didn't use it. The servants from this parable, Abraham Lincoln, Beethoven, Martin Luther, Ruth, They didn't have a faith that was stuck in the status quo. Their faith was not limited by only what what they could see or what made sense. These people are not the rule, but rather the exception. So our final recalibrate question I want to ask you is, is your faith stuck in the status quo? Today when you walk out of these doors, are you going to walk down the nice paved path of the status quo, or are you going to step out like Ruth and not let the pros and cons list weigh you down, but have faith in a God that surpasses all our knowledge and understanding. Every day we're given choices, much like Ruth and Orpah. Sometimes we're given outs and sometimes we can use logic and reason and the status quo to stop us from taking the more difficult path. A path that technically no one can blame us for, a path where you do what's expected. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing worthy of reprimand, but nothing worthy of praise. But remember, it's the extraordinary behavior of Ruth that moves the story from grief to joy, from emptiness to fullness. So today, if you're looking to move your story, your family's story, this community's story, this world's story, you must be willing to take extraordinary actions. You must choose to be ruthless, not in the literal sense of the word, but in the sense where Ruth was so selfless that she gave herself up. She was literally ruthless. If you're looking to move the story, you have to be willing to climb straight up the mountain. You have to be willing to take no outs, to not be boxed in by the way it's always been done, to go where God calls you and to be bold and to break the status quo. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this community that's here today. Jesus, thank you for the story of Ruth that reminds us to not just be ordinary but be extraordinary, to take chances and to be bold and to move when you call us, to go where you say go and to stay where you Stay, say, stay Jesus. We thank you for being a God that has unlimited power. And Jesus, we ask you today to give us the power and the courage to not be stuck in the status quo. Jesus, we want our faith to be limitless. We want you to give us faith that surpasses our knowledge, our understanding, what we can see, Jesus. Help us to understand that although we might not see the path, it's there and you're working your ways. Jesus, give us the hearts and the character and the courage of Ruth. We pray this all in your name. Amen.